0: not working so I'm going to so that's the setting we're in this is the promised predestination sermon or teaching from a few weeks ago from the Q&A where we said we are start looking at what the Bible teaches about predestination, how should we be thinking about predestination biblically? So, to that end, we will read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and pray and um, see what the Lord has to teach us. And that, let us read God's word, Romans 8, verse 28 through 30. This is the word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among, them, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning, confessing our sinfulness, confessing our inability to comprehend anything that is worth your glory. Anything that is spiritually discerned can only be Revealed and illumined by your Spirit, so we come before you not only acknowledging this truth, but also asking for grace, that you may illumine the truth of your Word to us. As we discuss the topic of predestination, Lord, would you be our vision? Would you guide our hearts and illumine our minds? by the power of your Spirit, so that we may see the truth of your word. We may be convicted of your truth that sanctifies us, that conforms us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So it's common for us to hear words like, and phrases like, karma or it is what it is, or what goes around comes around, destiny, Uh, fate. Those ideas and principles and phrases are common in our time and our day. You you might have even used those words in your language this week, in your conversation with your friends. uh, Something happens to them, or something happens to you, and they say, well, you know, it is what it is, kind of have to live with it or they do something to you or you do something to them and then later on you find out they stub their toe and you're like see what goes around comes around which alludes to the principle of things being set in motion by powers higher than us um and it's almost like fate kind of like when people die or when people get sick or when something drastic happens i remember for me um, back in college, I pursued a career, not only in, in psychology, but also in, in professional soccer, which, as you know, I am not a professional soccer player, nor have I played one on TV, but that was something that I wanted to be. Um, but I got injured, I have bad knees, I don't know if it's genetics. I don't know if it's my height. People give me all, whatever it was, I had two, not necessarily career ending injuries, but damaging injuries to my knees, on both knees, that pretty much told me that I was not going to be a soccer player. Therefore, I decided, or people, who counseled me going through that moment, those moments, like maybe that's not fate. That's not your destiny. Maybe God has something else for you. So these are things that you can relate with. And I'm mentioning these things because these are common principles that we live by and we, we believe them or we we even apply them to our lives. And these Comments and these words and these principles are kind of abstract, right? Like there's no clear distinction of, oh, exactly when God intervened. Is it really God's plan? they depending on who you ask, karma can mean so many different things. Depending on who you ask, fate can mean anything. Depending on who you ask, destiny, and it is what it is, especially that term. What is it? It depends what it is. So these are just abstract principles and it depends on who you ask. So our topic for today um, and for the next several weeks has a similar effect from a biblical perspective. When you talk about predestination, we believe in predestination. We believe that God predestined, God knows all things, he knows things before they happen, and he knows the destiny of things before it happens. And so from an abstract perspective, we we subscribe to it and we believe in it, but it depends on who you ask and what day it is and what context you're, um, you're discussing. To that effect, I am 100% certain That all Christians, all of us that are Christians believe in predestination in one form or the other. Again, we're not getting into the nuance yet. I'm just setting the table here. In fact, I would even expand it and say all religions, all deistic worldviews believe in some form of predestination that there is a higher power, there is a, a deity that's out there that knows the destiny before you get there and he sets it in motion or it sets it in motion, whatever you want to say in whatever worldview you're in. Everybody kind of agrees to that end. Even the atheists or the agnostics would say the universe or the cards or the stars, whatever it is. It's not in the cards for me. Give it to the So, again, without getting to the nuance, everybody believes in that. However, we're not discussing cards or astronomy or any other religion. We are discussing the truth of God's word. And our study's emphasis is on where in the Bible does predestination exist? And if I can sense the question that was asked a few weeks ago, is it a point of contention? Should it be a point of contention? Or why is it a point of contention among believers? That's the emphasis of our study in this topic. And as we have seen, it is not really a point of contention in a general sense. All Christians believe that God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is all-powerful and He's eternal. And He eternally knows all things. And therefore, He is in control. We even believe in His sovereignty, which we'll see in the next, in the next couple of weeks. So the general meaning of predestination doesn't necessarily make us fight amongst each other, if I may use that term. For instance, if the day that all of us would die, God knows it. We don't know it. I don't know when I'm going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. So if I were to say God predestined the day that you would actually die physically, you wouldn't know temper tantrum and say, oh, man, that's because you're reformed. Oh, no, that's because you're in this theological um, camp or you're in the other one. You would agree with me. Yeah, absolutely. God knows when I when I die. And he's said that emotion before I was even born. Okay, I, I get it. God is powerful. He knows when I die. I don't know when I die, so I make, must make... So in, in those areas, we don't necessarily fight. And in my reading the last few weeks preparing for this the idea of the principle of predestination a doctrine of predestination and what its implications are in how you are saved and how salvation happens is the point of contention for all believers what its implications is how you are saved. How are we saved? Are we saved because God predestined for you for some to be saved and for some to be condemned, or is it not? Again, I'm just asking the general question. We'll dig deep and see exactly what the Bible teaches on that. That's what makes it a point of contention. Does God predestine some people to be saved and some people not to be saved, which is to be condemned. That is where the point of contention happens. And it's all all well intended. We don't want God to appear like he's harsh. How can a loving God? We want to keep God's integrity safe. That's why we want to say, I can't really see why a holy and loving God, who's a good God, can predestine some to be saved and some to be condemned. Again, I'm just setting the table here. Just follow along with me why that point becomes a point of contention. And no matter where you look, whichever side you fall on, whichever side people fall on, There's one verse, mostly two verses, but one, and more specifically, that everybody refers back to to support their point, which is in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called, those who called he, called he called he also justified those whom he justified, he also glorified. So both camps, if I may use that term, would use this these two verses to support no God does or God doesn't in the different perspectives of predestination. But notice how I began in verse 28. I began in verse 28 because I think it's really important to set the context of God's word out of context. You can make the Bible say anything you want to say. And therefore, I want us to be confident in what we know today. As we're discussing about predestination, that's why I titled it pre-predestination, because before we start discussing what the doctrine of predestination is from the Bible, let's see what Paul talks about, what the Word of God tells us in terms of what we know. Notice in verse 28, Paul begins saying, "...and we know." There's something, there's an insertion of what something that we know as believers. And his insertion of what we know should be seen in light of the hope of glory. Which he discusses in, in, uh, at the end of verse 30. But leading up to verse 28, uh, especially started, starting in verse 18 through 27, Paul is talking about having hope in time of suffering. Even though we suffer, even though we go through all these things, even though we struggle with sin and temptation and trials and tribulation and everything else in between, we have hope in Christ and God has given us His Spirit to empower this hope in our lives in light of that, here's what we know. In light of the hope of glory, we have been justified, as justified, adopted children of God through the Son, who are Spirit-led, for whom the Spirit intercedes. right? Verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he... Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So all of our discussions should be seen in light of this, in light of the hope of glory that we have in accordance to the Father's will. And it is because we are justified, it is because we are adopted children of God whom who, who God pours His Spirit in us, and that Spirit prays and intercedes in us and, and, and according to the Father's will, that's why we know what we know. This is why this emphatic assertion in verse 28, and we know, is there. This is what makes what we know decisive. This is what makes what we know Powerful and emphatic and firm because we have the Spirit who intercedes for us according to God's will. So with that being said, let's take a look at what Paul says. What, what are some things, observing these three verses, what are some things that we do know? So I want to ask that question, what do we know? we know these things if you notice we know that all things work together for good in verse 28 and then we know that there are those who love God again in verse 28 there are those who are called in verse 28 and also in verse 30 there are those whom God foreknew It's in verse 29. We know that there are those who God predestines, just from the text. Verse 29 and verse 30. We know that there are those who God justifies. That's verse 30. And we know that there there are those whom God glorifies. In verse 30. That is undeniable. We see that coming out of the text. We can't say we can't know that predestination. Here's what we can't do. We can't say predestination is not in the Bible. Or God predestines people and and elects people and justifies people and glorifies people. We can't say that because here's what God's word says. We know these things exist. We know there are groups of people that are there. As you look at that list of groups of people, I wanted you to notice out of all of these, out of all the six groups of people, there's only two that are qualified, that are explained furthermore. And those are. In verse 28, those who are called according to his purpose. So he qualifies that, the calling. And also back um, down in verse 29, those he also predestined, and he qualifies that as well, to become conformed to the image of his son. Notice how... Those who are glorified or those who are justified aren't really qualified or explained here. I thought that was an an interesting thing to, to look at. Notice the elect or the election process or the calling process and the predestination process is qualified so that it gives us a better vivid picture. So with this being said, let's track the thought process together of what is revealed in God's word by asking a few questions. So let's let's ask a few questions about these things we've observed. First question Now, I want us to consider is, who is the one working all things together? Verse twenty-eight says, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good." Who is it that is working all things together? Are all things together, by the Greek word here, is synergio, which sounds like a synergy, which is which talks about how things come together and. And and work together in harmony to, to to a specific goal, right? So let's let's ask, ask what that question. Who is the one working all things together? Are these things just working together by themselves, just in a vacuum? Are your trials, your temptations, your sins, your your strengths, your good points, your your weakness, all these things that are happening around you, in you, and through you, all these things that are at work around us and in us, are these things working together in a vacuum? Clearly, that is not so. Or better yet, uh, another question to ask is, with whom are all these things working together? So if these things are working, who are they working with? And your answer should be, and is, is God. Actually, some manuscripts would read, uh, would, would have this verse written as, as, as this. And we know that for those who, who love God, he works all things together for good. To emphasize that these things don't just work themselves out. There is God behind all things that is working these things out for good. And we know this because this is what the Bible teaches from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. If we want to take a look at that, here's what God says, or what Moses says to the people of Israel, reminding them of what Yahweh has done, what God has done. And he, he tells them, he led you through the great great. And fearsome wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. Remember what the scorpions and the fiery serpents did to the people of Israel? People were dying. This wasn't a pleasant thing. As they were walking through this great and fearsome wilderness. And thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for for you out of the rock of Flint. Verse 16, in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know. You see how God was working in the people of Israel and through the people of Israel, all their grumblings, all their temptations. Oh, we're thirsty. There's no water. You're going to kill us out here. There's no food. I miss the onions in Egypt. Oh, man, you just brought us out here. And you thought we thought we were going to get saved from from slavery. And you just brought us out here so we can die in this wilderness. All this grumblings and sinful attitudes. God was working through that. He punishes them by sending them these fiery serpents. Even that and his discipline. All these things Moses says he does so look at the last Part of verse 16, that he might humble you and that he might test you. For what purpose? To do good for you in the end. So he works all these things out, all these circumstances. So it is God who is at work in all things for good. Along with that, let's ask, what is good anyways? Let's ask that question. It's important for us to, to, to have these definitions clearly explained in our minds and be on the same page when it comes to that so that we can move on. Who defines goodness? Right, Because if we, if we read this text and you say, oh, God works everything together for his good. Okay, what do I think is good? I think it's good for me to eat some, to, some doro and some tips later on. That's, that's what's good right now. Right, right now, what's good for me is the, the Easter feast. And to some of you, what's good for you is for this sermon to end abruptly right now so you can go home and and enjoy Ethiopian Easter. What's good for you can, can also be making a lot of money. Whatever, it depends, right? If we are the ones who define goodness, it depends from situation to situation. It is very subjective. So who objectively defines goodness is a better question to consider. The question, the answer to that is God. Now I want you to, to to notice how God is the one working all things together and God is the one who defines what is good. So not only he works it out, but he also defines the end which is goodness right look at what what um, what first chronicles verse 16 uh, chapter 16 verse 34 says oh give thanks to Yahweh for he is good not only he is good for his love and kindness endures forever You notice the definition of good? Who is good? He is good. God is good. Yahweh is good. So who defines goodness? It's God because that's who he is. In in a familiar passage in Matthew chapter 19, where the, the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit, well, actually, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is Jesus' response. The Lord responds in verse 17 He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. But notice what Jesus says. And we, we notice that the guy thought he was good enough because he kept all, his, all the commandments in his, in his own eyes. But when he's asked to, to sell everything that he has and give it away and follow Christ, he says, ah, no can do, and goes, around, goes away sad, which shows that his standard of goodness was as good as his money. And his riches. So God is the only one who is ultimately and objectively and unchangeably good because that is essentially who he is. Since we're on the topic of goodness, when we think of goodness, we think of positive outcomes, right? Especially in our time. It is good for me to have a lot of money. It is good to, for me to have a family that, that loves me. It is good for, for, for me to, to eat well and to be happy. And those things are good. There's, n- there's nothing wrong with making those statements or uh, what have you. Here's a question I want us to consider. Is justice good what and is mercy good most of us think the mercy of of God that was displayed through Christ on the cross defines the goodness of God which it does but I believe that's incomplete what about the justice Of God is it good for God to give justice and we may say well you know I don't know but if let's make this real-life scenario let's take this if someone was to break into your house steal all of your belongings including your phone, especially your phone, hack your phone, get on your social media and just completely and utterly assassinate your character. Takes everything that you have. Would you want that person to be caught and brought to justice? The answer is yes, you would. If someone causes you bodily harm, punches you or kicks you or uses a weapon and cuts you, whatever, would you want that person to be held responsible for his or her actions? And the answer is yes. Yes. So, is justice good in that sense? Yes, justice is good. So, is God being just a good thing? Yes. In fact, this is how God Himself describes Himself. Not even anybody else. This is verbatim what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. When he descends to the mountain and he passes before Moses. Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7. Then Yahweh passed in front of him and called out. Yahweh. Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and kindness and truth. Wow. We want to hold on to that. That's good, right? God being slow to anger, God being compassionate, God being gracious, God being abounding in love and kindness and truth. That is wonderful news to us. We want to hold on to that. We want to grasp and say, yeah, this is the God whom we serve. This is the God whom we worship. Yes, he is good. You know, look how good he is. He's so compassionate. He is so gracious. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in love and kindness and truth. Not only that, he keeps loving loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is why I am redeemed by the blood of Christ because he forgave my sin and he forgives my iniquities. He forgives my sin. How blessed I am as we saw in Psalm 32 when Kyle was here a few weeks ago. This is the goodness of God. Great. But he doesn't stop there. Yet he says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, on the third and fourth generation, he also is just in that same goodness. If we define, if he defines good in his the definition of his goodness, that his he's good to. To forgive sins and transgressions. He's good to be faithful and to abound in love and kindness and truth. He is gracious, he's compassionate. That's good. But he's also good because he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He serves justice. That also is his goodness. And I bring this up in in the context of our conversation about predestination is because one of the arguments, which I'll just briefly touch on, and we'll look at it in depth in the coming weeks, is if God is so good, why would he send people to hell? Because they're guilty. Because he will not, by no means, leave the guilty unpunished. Why would God predestine people to condemnation? Because he is a God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. Who will visit iniquity through our generations. Who repays that. Who is just. And knowing that, understanding that, and coming to terms with what it means for God to be good and just. To be compassionate and just. And that is a good thing. Those who sin against God and who sin against His people will be held responsible. This is why we have hope that our temptations, our trials, and the things and the people and and the circumstances that put us in those places of tribulation and suffering in the present time, the Paul discusses in verse 18 through 27, those will be visited by God's justice. This is what gives us hope. Now let's quickly move on to the, the, the first two descriptors of the people. Now we've seen what goodness is, now what we've seen, who sets the standard for goodness and who works these things out. Let's quickly move to to whom do all things work together for good? It's a very exclusive group of people that have these things working together for good for them. It's not for everyone. It's not an indefinite and all inclusive invitation. Bible teaches us we know that for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose, that is, it's only to those that things work together for good. First thing that we noticed is, it's for those who love God. And you're sitting there, you're saying, I love God. We sang about, God, I would love you forever. And we were excited about that. We, We do love God. But do we love God inherently? So, the next question for us to consider would be, who loves God inherently? Where does that love of God come from? That Do you love God? Do I have more love than those who have all things not work together for good for them? Inherently? Is that who I am? Is that what the Bible teaches? In terms of who loves God? No one loves God. I mean Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 3. In the larger context, there's no one that does good. There's no one who searches for God. No one seeks for God. Not even one. So when it comes to our love relationship with God, here's what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. Notice that. But that He loved us. We don't inherently love God. So why would Paul here say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. If we don't have love for God inherently, it's because he loved us first. Look at what he says in verse 19 again in that same chapter. We love because he first loved us. Us. he initiates that love he pours that love in your heart and therefore you love him so again he is the author of that love who defines that defines or that describes those who have all things worked together for good for them I want you to notice that God is the subject and the source of all these things. Everything that we've discussed, it begins with God. God supplies the love. God is the one working together. God is the one who is good. Everything begins and ends with God, including the calling. For those who are called, who is that who calls? You would say God, and you would be right. How does he call us? How does he call the people? Paul says he calls according to his purpose. Not according to how well you're behaving and how Christian you are, what family you were born in. Not according to anything that has any thing that has to do with you. He calls, they are called according to his purpose. And you would agree with me that God saves us, calls us into salvation while we were yet sinners. That's Romans chapter 5. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us to reconcile us to the Father. So it's not, I have to be reconciled Before I'm called, it's not that I have to clean my act up together before God calls me. God calls me according to his purpose. God calls you according to his purpose. So even the calling not only proceeds from him and also ends with his purpose. It is all about him. Now, if you're called according to his purpose, let me ask you this, to consider, can anyone thwart or prevent God's purpose? And these these questions are really rhetorical questions. They might even sound like simplistic questions like, what are you talking about? Of course not. There's no one that can stop God's plan from happening. God is all-powerful. There's nothing in there, no one that can stop God. We know this. So if he calls you according to his purpose, can you stop his calling from actually taking effect in your life? Can your circumstances stop That calling from taking effect into your life. If he calls you and he purposes that call in your life. The answer is no. No one can thwart or prevent God's purpose. Notice what Job confesses. After he goes through all these things, and now you know who Job is. You know his story. Talk about all things. He had all things. He had a good family, a good wife, a bunch of money, God-fearing. All these things are going well for him. And then that's taken away from him. Just stripped off every single thing that he has, layer by layer. And goes into despair, and then he himself takes a physical abuse. (laughs) He he has this ailment, and he's got boils on his body, and all these things, and he's going through all these things, and he got counselors around him, good good psychologists and good philosophers, and all the trying to counsel him and everything else. And here is the conclusion that he gets to. Job 42, Job, Job 42, too. <laughs> Here's what he, in the final analysis, what he confesses. I know that you can do all things. Really, Job? You just now finding this out? You didn't know this? But this is his confession. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. And that whole book is a, just an illustration of how all things work together for good. For those of love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That really is just, from the first chapter to the last, the whole book gives us an illustration of how this actually plays out. With all the intricate details of day-to-day life, day-to-day conversations you may be having with your friends as you go through trials and tribulations and you struggle with your sin and your temptation. So I set all of this out, before us today in our conversation of predestination so that we can see that God is sovereign over all of this. And the idea of predestination is not supposed to be a point of contention, should not be a point of disunity, should be a place where you can look at God and be at rest and rejoice in who God is because it is God who is working all things out for good it is God who supplies the love to you and that reciproc uh, um, that that love that you have for him that you reciprocate back to him he supplies that love It is God who calls you and enables you to to respond to that love. Knowing that, if you firmly know that, if you are planted firmly in that knowledge, then the idea and the doctrine of predestination should not be a point of contention. It is a a place where you can actually rest in knowing the sovereign God is at work in your life for good and love and according to his purpose. So Paul, this is why I wanted to emphasize that beginning of verse 28, and we know that firm assertion. You need to be firm in this knowledge of God's purpose. To work in your sufferings. To work in your temptations. To work in your success. To work even in your sin. To bring about the ultimate good that he purposed in Christ for you. That is the foundation that I wanted us to lay today. Before we dig deeper in verse 29 and 30 next week to see what is foreknowledge, what is predestination, what is election. Let's pray. Lord, we are so humbled how powerful you are how great you are how uh, how holy you are and how unsearchable your ways are lord as we read in our scripture reading you are in all things and there's nowhere we can run to there's nowhere we can go and hide from your presence. If we ascend to the heavens, there you are. If we go down to Sheol, there you are. If we grow wings and fly away to the farthest end of the seas, there also you are. And you are... Not only are sovereign, but you are gracious. You are compassionate. You abound in love and kindness. You forgive sins and transgressions and inequities. And it is because of that faithfulness that we can come before you and ask, for grace. Lord, it's because we know this. And it's because your spirit convicts ours. And it's because you are work in our lives. And it's because the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words and search our hearts and knows us. We can find comfort, that we can find confidence in who you are. So, Father, help us be firmly planted in this truth. Help us know the truth not just in our heads, not just in our minds, but also in our hearts with our affections. Let us love this truth your word. Let us be delighted in it. And out of that place in love and delight, we ask that your spirit continues to work these things out and apply it to the circumstances of our lives, whereby we can say we know Let all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to your purpose. So Lord, we thank you for loving us and displaying that love to us through your Son, Christ Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension, His imminent coming is not only the display of Your love, but also the hope that we have in Him. But we also thank You for calling us according to Your purpose that cannot be thwarted or prevented, for overwhelming us by Your grace so that we may respond to your call in faith, repentance, and obedience. Father, thank you for all things. In your Son, Jesus' name, amen.